everyone, and welcome to Data Brunch with ICPSR. If you love data, this is going to be food for thought. I'm Dory. And I'm Anna. And I can't believe this, but it is our final episode of season two. This season, we've talked to some incredible folks, um, including Stephanie LeBou, the mother of Data Jeff. Um, we talked about being a data detective during Love Data Week. We talked to Libby Hemphill about extremism in social media in a live episode with many of you joining us. And we talked to Fabian Pfeffer about wealth inequality. Wow, that was a good one. They were all good ones. Um, we also talked to the Consortium of European Social Science Data Archives, aka SESTA, along with our own director, Maggie Levenstein, about leading data communities through the years. That was a good one with SESTA. And of course, we kicked off our season talking to Vanessa Otero at AdFontes Media about the media bias and reliability chart. And if you miss any of these, you can find them on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back for season three in fall of 2022. And I am so excited about today's interview because we get to talk to the COVID Border Accountability Project. They're looking into the data to determine if border closures actually slowed down the spread of COVID. It's going to be a fascinating interview, and it's going to be great to hear from them, especially since one of our interviewees is in the field as we speak. Uh, but first, some quick ICPSR updates. This week, in current events, our minds are all on the invasion of Ukraine. In our show notes, we'll include a list provided from the University of Michigan that includes ways to help address the humanitarian crisis, learning opportunities, and events. A new article with findings based on data held at ICPSR explores whether Putin's Ukraine invasion will drive down support among Russian elites. You can find the data and the article linked through our ICPSR bibliography of data-related literature, and we'll have that in the show notes, of course. All right, so we are recording this in mid-March 2022, and there are a few deadlines and exciting opportunities that are coming up. The summer program, uh, the scholarship applications for the summer program are due on March 28th, 2022. We're so excited the summer program is coming up. We'll be hybrid this year, um, and the summer program will start in May 2022. And we also have several job openings. Take a look at our homepage at icpsr.umich.edu to see a list. I know we have some teaching assistant positions and some tech positions that are open at the moment. Um, but for those who are listening in the future, you can always find our open positions on our website or just send us an email. We would be happy to connect you to those. We also have a couple of data trainings that are coming up, including... Um, how Liberal Education Advances Democratic Engagement, which will be on March 31st, 2022, and another called Reimagining Primary Healthcare for Individuals with Disabilities, which takes place on April 14th, and then Accessing and Using Data, excuse me, I said that funny, Accessing and Using Data from the Head Start Family and Child Experiences Survey, and that webinar will be on April 19th. All of these are webinars. They're free to the public. 
Um, we do record them. So if you're listening in the future and these dates have passed, you will be able to hear those recordings by going to our YouTube. And of course, we'll have a link to that um, and all of our upcoming events in our show notes. Thanks, Anna. We also have some cool new data. Our curators here at ICPSR have been busy since we last talked. There is so much new data. We have about 30 new studies in our health and medical care archive, including surveys about public health priorities, discrimination in healthcare, and a poll conducted with NPR where participants answered the question, what shapes health? I'm really excited about those. We internally, we call that archive the Hemka archive, and there is so much cool stuff in the Hemka archive. So check that out if you haven't been there. Um, and speaking of health, great segue, Dory. We are very excited to introduce the COVID Border Accountability Project. Um, we should note that the principal investigator, Mary Sheriff, is currently doing field work. We were very lucky to catch her with hotel Wi-Fi. Um, all right, take it away, Dory. Welcome back, everyone. And now we'd like to introduce you to our guests for today, who are all collaborators on the COVID Border Accountability Project, which examines whether the international border closures introduced throughout the 2020 and 2021 pandemic reduced the spread of COVID-19. So we have a few guests today to welcome to Data Brunch. A big welcome to Mary Louise Midstarfer, who is a postdoctoral research, here I go, twisting words. So, <laughs> We've only been here two minutes, Dory. Oh my goodness. <laughs> a big welcome to Mary Louise Midstarfer, a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Lehigh University. Welcome. As a postdoc, Mary works with the Institute of Critical Race and Ethnic Studies Health Justice Collaborative, supporting the Health Equity Activation and Research Team, which has the wonderful acronym HEART. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Also, welcome to Paul Friesen from the Department of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. Paul is a PhD candidate in political science and a dissertation year fellow at the Kellogg Institute for International Studies. Paul's research centers on developing a more in-depth understanding of political behavior, party attachment, and electoral competition across African countries. Welcome. Great to be here. And last but not least, welcome to Mary Sheriff from the Department of Political Science, also at the University of Notre Dame. Sheriff is a PhD candidate in comparative politics and political theory. Her work examines identity transmission outcomes of border policies, especially in communist and post-communist settings. Thanks so much for having us. So for all of our listeners, if you want to follow along as we're talking, head over to covidborderaccountability.org 
where you can find a map that displays information on border closures around the world related to COVID-19. Amazingly, this map is all hand-coded. And of course, we'll link to the website and data and anything else we talk about here in our show notes. Okay, so I'll pass it over to you, Anna, for the first question. Awesome. Um, I am so excited. I have so many questions. I would love to, like, how did you hand code all this? I have so many questions. But first, let's start kind of, you know, at square one. Um, Can you just tell us about what the COVID Border Accountability Project is and how your team started working together? Sure. So I will give the overview um, introduction because I'm the principal investigator of the first publication, which Mary and and I worked on. Um, And the second publication that just came out this week, Paul and I um, headed up. So the project started March 2020. Um, Lots of things did then just kind of confused <laughs> with what was going on. Um, I was you know, personally and professionally impacted by the border closures um, personally, because I have a identity attachment to travel, I would say. Um, I've certainly learned that I do. Um, and professionally, because my field work requires um, travel across international borders on a pretty regular basis. Um, so my project um, got stalled. And the border closures, I had, you know, a question, how many are there going to be? How long are they going to last? You know, descriptive statistics to start. Um, and then the question of whether, whether or not they were going to do the job that they were um, intended to do. Um, you know, are they going to stop the spread of COVID-19? Um, and also, are there other motivations for introducing them um, that may, maybe they'll last longer than than we want. Um, so that's kind of the motivation for the study. I can Very go cool. on and on forever. <laughs> I'll just stop from time to time. No, that's great. That that's a that's a really great introduction. And that kind of leads me to the question about, you know, how how did each of you get involved working in this? I know that COVID has been such a uh, such a designer of our lives in these last couple of years, but but how did um, Paul and Mary Louise, how did you get here? So I want to let Mary take this because I haven't heard her impression. Whoa. So I think it's a bit of a long story, as most things are. Um, so uh, summer 2020, I was a teaching assistant at ICPSR um, for Colin Lewis Beck. Um, and that is in regression one. And that is where I met Mary. And Mary was like, I have this idea. I'm going to talk to Colin about it. um, And I'll loop you in later on. Fast forward to the um, spring of 2021. And I remember it was a very snowy day in Philadelphia. I had gone for a walk with my dog and Mary told me all about this amazing project. And I was like, yep, I'm there. I'm down for it. How can I help? Right. Um, And that's kind of how I came into it and then slug through a a lot of very weird European policies uh, for the remainder of that spring into that summer and learned so much. Um, And she, Mary really put together just this phenomenal research team um, and kept us all motivated and kept us all going despite us never actually meeting in person. Um, So yeah, that's how I came to the work. 
So that was great, Mary. It's a part of why I wanted to do this podcast, um, because we've just like been marching forward in the project and not really taking a second to stop and look back. And I'll talk about Paul later, but you guys ask me another question because I'll just keep talking. Go ahead and talk about Paul now. <laughs> okay, so Paul and I are in the same cohort at the University of Notre Dame. Um, but Paul, you tell your side of the story. First of all, I want to say Mary is an incredible networker. So I think a big um, reason why this data set is in existence is her ability to seek funding, uh, seek out advisors, and then put together this incredible team of research assistants, right? Um, so they are the, the hidden heroes of any big data collection project, are um, people that are putting in the grunt work of looking for these things online and coding it. Um, so I wasn't part of that process. Um, I just I just showed up at a workshop and she shows up with this just incredible data set that I didn't think a graduate student could put together. Um, and so I was just, just really excited by the scope of it, uh, by the quality of work. And, um, you know, all of us, you know, we we're all interested in COVID research because it's all affected us. Um, and so, you know, even just personally, it's like, you know, and think back to the very beginnings of the pandemic. Um, the first main action that I remember from the U.S. government was President Trump closing international travel restrictions with China. Um, and then just an argument in the media um, about whether that was effective or worthwhile or not. And it didn't seem like anybody really knew. And then we see as soon as you know, COVID becomes a widespread phenomenon across countries around the world, just this explosion of travel restrictions, border closures, uh, certain countries picking on other countries, some countries just completely closing everything and shutting it down and being super careful. Other countries seeming like, you know, they're not really paying attention to it or, you know, I forget what it's called, like the Sweden model or something of like, let's just pretend it's not going on. Um, and so, yeah, it's like, I think we're all interested in this and we need to get this data set uh, analyzed and get some findings out there. Um, and so that was something that just really excited me, uh, Mary showing up with this incredible data set and then, um, yeah, me being able to join the team after that. Thank you, Paul, for turning the conversation in the direction of the COBAP data set. And again, for people who might be just uh, tuning in, uh, COBAP stands for COVID Border Accountability Project. So my next question is just, um, as I was reading your recent publication uh, in Nature, and I'll get to a question about that next, but um, uh, there was some discussion about how there, you know, there was some data missing or maybe didn't exist. And so tell us about this data set that you have assembled. Yes. So I think this is where the, the grandma test comes into hand in handy. Um, I actually had the chance to describe the project to my grandmother. Um, and the way that I described it to her is we, we went out and we collected um, any time a country decided to close its international borders to a foreign population during 2020. And now we've extended the data set through end of 2021. Um, so it's international border closures. Um, and I was thinking, you know, it's going to be 20, maybe 60 in March. Um, and it, by the end of 2020, it was over a thousand. 
Um, and end of 2021, we have a couple thousand um, policies that were introduced. Um, so this doesn't include internal domestic lockdowns, um, and it doesn't include um, the, a few cases where countries actually um, force people to leave. Uh, it just it just records incoming travel across international borders. Um, and I forget how many countries we ended up with, but um, a lot of the data sets that were available didn't include African countries, didn't include um, island countries, which I thought were really important for this topic. Um, so the scope of our ge geography is 230 countries plus island territories. Um, so it is massive. I'll give it that. So congratulations on your new article in Nature. And the title of that, uh, we'll include that in our show notes, but it's, Did Border Closures Slow SARS-CoV-2? And it's just a really great dive into the data. Can you talk about how you found no evidence in favor of international border closures, but a strong relationship between domestic lockdowns and a reduced spread of COVID? How does that work exactly? I think... You know, this article is growing out of, you know, discussions from this early workshop. And Mary and I, you know, sat down and said, what are the two big questions that we really or like, what are the big questions that we want to um, tackle here? The first two that came to mind were, were these effective or not? Which is, I mean, so basic. But if we just assume that if countries are doing it, that it is working, it's based on um, evidence. But we haven't had like a pandemic like this in a century, right? Um, and the, the nature of international politics is completely different. So I think a lot of these things are really unknown. Um, and then the second article that we are just starting to work on now, not to get ahead, but is um, what motivated which countries to institute lockdowns, right? So that's more of like the geopolitics of it. Um, but like the first step is just to see did these things do anything, right? We have thousands of border closures between countries of different varieties. Um, did they, do we see an effect of slowing COVID rates? Um, so the short answer is no, we don't find any significant effects. We were a little bit concerned just because this is, you know, a non-experimental setting. There are, you know, uh, complex reasons why countries choose to implement their their border lockdowns in the first place or the travel restrictions. Um, so we said, okay, let's do another test on another policy to see whether our methods are sound or not. So we um, created a variable where countries were um, basically increased their severity of domestic lockdowns quickly. So they had a big shock to their um, their own domestic political system by restricting school closures, gatherings, like internal travel and all this sort of stuff. So that was our check to see whether our methods were relatively sound for the international test. And there we find a large drop in COVID cases starting two weeks after um, the domestic lockdowns um, occur, basically. So that signals to us that, yeah, this null finding of the border closures not having any difference um, in slowing COVID um, is pretty valid. 
and I can go into the methods a little bit more, but um, that might not pass the grammar test. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, the grammar test. Um, and what we're talking about for everybody who's listening is, you know, if if we want to make sure that the things that we're talking about are something that, you know, anybody's grandma could understand. So hearing something like, you know, the international border closures didn't help, but the domestic closures did. That is huge. Is there, are there other kind of key findings that, that, that came out of this that you wanted to share? We don't know why we have such a strong correlation with the lockdowns and a reduction in SARS-CoV-2 spread um, a couple weeks later. That's, you know, it could be correlation, not causation. Um, the only causal claim that we have in our, our paper was about the border closures. Um, so I, I think we will take on the question of why border closures were introduced um, possibly for political motivations, but there's so many columns in the data that we haven't run any analysis on. Um, so we haven't, for instance, run analysis on why countries were targeting other countries. Um, and just from preliminary looks at the data, there were definitely cases where countries would introduce a ban against specific groups of foreigners. Um, and then that country would retaliate with the exact same policy, sometimes copying and pasting and changing the country name. <laughs> so wow. these were always fun to see. Um, and then there, so there were alliances that were happening as well. Um, you know, certain exceptions made for countries that were very interesting. Um, so a lot of countries targeted China initially um, with the thought that it was coming from Wuhan. Um, but based on the country's politics, they would either make an exception for Hong Kong or not. Um, so there's so much you can unpack. Um, and I don't know if Mary wants to talk from her experience collecting the data, um, but it, it's difficult to make claims without regional knowledge. Um, and I think Paul's knowledge of Africa comes in handy as well here. Um, I'll just pass it over. Yeah, if I could jump in. Um, well, data collection, I feel like I could talk about the Schnegen region of Europe, which if you do not know what the Schnegen region is, and I don't think I say it right, I think it's Schengen. Um, Mary, can you correct me? I think it's Schengen. It's the passport-free yeah, zone right. of Europe, right? And so I found that, we all found it incredibly challenging, um, because how do you restrict borders when you don't have to travel with a passport? Um, and so that presented really interesting um, obstacles. And one of my favorite research assistants and close personal friend um, who was on here who helped us really dissect this out is uh, a German researcher named Lucas Federn, um, who is also an ICPSR alum, right? But, you know, starting to dissect and figure that out um, was a really difficult task. And, you know, from my American exceptionalism standpoint, I never really understood how interesting international law is and how cloudy and noisy it can be. And from a data perspective, I think that noise in this data set presents a lot of challenges, right? 
because you're not going to have a perfect relationship between this border closure and this spread or all of these other things. And as a health disparities researcher, I think one of my biggest excitements over this data set is what it can tell us, right? Um, we saw a rise in anti-Asian climate, in Asian hate crimes, right, in the United States during the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, it's no surprise that the U.S. had closed borders to China, right? So when the U.S. elects or other countries elect to close their borders towards a population of people, do we see inequities and hate and discrimination increase? And I'm excited to see if researchers will take up this call um, to really understand how these policies create division, especially in heterogeneous nations like the United States, um, who often uh, backlash comes towards minoritized and marginalized populations. Um, so I think that's one really interesting thing we can think about on a global scale with this work. Um, and also, I love the finding of Mary and Paul's new paper around international borders. I come from a transnational family. Uh, my mom and my aunt are back and forth to Mexico a few times a year, taking care of elderly family members. And there was a lot of fear in early COVID around, could we get to them? What would happen if they weren't able to go and help? And would we even be able to see them or would um, something happen prior to it? So I think it also validates this idea of keeping borders open during pandemic times um, and dis dispels a lot of myths. And I think that's so important as we talk about equity and how data can create more equitable environments. So I, I'm in love with this project and the possibilities. And I would charge health disparities researchers or health researchers listening um, to think about the structural implications of these policies and how they create division and how they create disparities. And how can this inform your work, um, especially moving forward? So I wanna bring it back to Paul and see if you have any reflections on uh, the border closures as it relates to African countries. Yeah, um, this hasn't been a central piece of my research. I'm more focused on elections and parties and this sort of thing. Um, but I, I can definitely see, you know, when something like the pandemic happens, like when a big disaster or shock to the system in any country around the world, people look for something or somebody to blame. Um, and so both here in the United States and I could see this happening in the countries I work in in Africa, um, you know, because there's already some uh, like anti-Asian or anti-Chinese sentiments underneath the surface, just having something like saying the virus was first found in China creates this, you know, xenophobia, which can be uh, sometimes encouraged or leveraged by politicians and pundits and this sort of thing. So I think, I think that um, the nature of the pandemic, it being a global phenomenon, um, does, has impacted all country, you know, populations across all countries with um, like a little bit more of like xenophobic fear or like, you know, we're scared of people from other countries 
because that's where the disease is oriented and this sort of thing. Um, so I think it, yeah, I, I was surprised at like how global of a phenomenon in very diverse countries looking for someone to blame, um, kind of xenophobia rising to the surface in an ugly way. Um, the other, I, I especially um, kind of burned into my uh, memory as a cartoon I saw on Twitter, which was uh, being repudiated, but it was from a French newspaper and it was uh, COVID-shaped people with African features coming in a boat to Europe, right? So it's like, it's the perfect intersection of anti-migration xenophobic feelings and then leveraging the fear of COVID um, into a, a even more frightening and you know alarming kind of um, anti-immigration stance. So, and it, you know, racist, really. Um, so I think the first step is figuring out what did these border closures do? Where were they effective? Where are they not effective? We see now from the, the general scope of taking all border closures, we don't see any helpful effects, basically. Um, so now it comes down to asking, trying to answer the question of what were the costs of these border closures? We know that there are economic costs. We know that there are human costs, emotional costs, people being separated from their families, etc. cetera. Um, and then where does politics come into play, which is really the interesting part from you know, us as political scientists. Um, are these xenophobic feelings, especially as we see um, anti-immigration sentiments in Western countries continuing to increase um, in you know last decades in the rise of more right-wing parties? Um, is this something that politicians from that group are really leveraging to um, score political points, basically, and are governments that have control? Um, that have these policies in our control of their countries uh, saying that, you know, we're closing off borders or restricting visas for particular countries to basically score political points with their base um, is something that's really the crux of where we're trying to take the next steps of the project. Holy moly, Paul. I like all the snaps, all the applause. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. Um, I think we could talk about this for another five hours and still not dig into everything. Um, but sadly, we are coming up on our time. I do have a very important and hard-hitting question that I want to make sure that we ask. We saw among your staff members on your website that you have a chief snack officer. Can you please tell us about Pepper? <laughs> this makes me so happy because I think about her every day and I FaceTime with her when I'm in the field every day. So Pepper is a crucial member of this team. Um, she has, she was at all those initial meetings. Um, and she, she also helped us raise a little bit of money initially. Um, I think it was like, uh, by news feed or like, um, live feed to Pepper. I can't remember my great idea I had in 2020. Um, but yeah, Pe Pepper's been, um, the chief snack officer from the very foundation of the project. That is fantastic. I, I can send you a picture and I will anyways. 
That would be great. And we will, uh, we'll link to that in the show notes if you're willing. Can you give us a, a verbal description of Pepper? Yes, this is important. So she's a beautiful black dog with white mane um, on her chest. And she is a rescue puppy from Atlanta Humane Society. Um, and we, we rescued her um, from a, a litter of other gorgeous dogs like her. She looks like a lab. Um, but she has the size of like a, I don't know, two terriers. It's very confusing. Everyone thinks she's a puppy. Um, and it was my dream when I was a kid to have a forever puppy. So yeah, she's my forever puppy. Aw. Well, I have to say my forever puppy, uh, you can probably hear in the background, is very excited to hear about your forever puppy. So um, love it. Absolutely love learning about your cheap snack officer. And speaking of snacks, <laughs> since this is data brunch, what's your favorite snack that you like to have while you're doing this awesome research? I can go first because uh, I almost broke my jaw like doing it. Um, but when I work with any kind of data, I usually get like two packs of gum and I am just continually chugging gum, uh, not like eating. Oh, sometimes I swallow it. I'm going to be real with you, um, but not swallowing it, just like continually changing out pieces to the point where um, I was doing this work while I was still finishing up my dissertation. And so at one point I was like, why does my jaw hurt so much? Um, so I guess my favorite data snack is gum, which is so weird. Um, eating is my favorite time of every day. So it's a very difficult question to answer um, without just thinking to the last meal that I just had. Um, <laughs> so the last meal I had, I'm, I'm in a hotel um, in Korcha, Albania, um, and I wanted to make sure I had strong Wi-Fi for this. Um, so I had a quick dinner, which turned out to be totally delicious. Um, it was kind of like a, um, I forget what it's called. It, so it was kofta. They said it was a traditional Albanian meat, um, but it was in a pita, like a, a Greek um, dish that is very popular, souvlaki. I don't know why I couldn't think of that. Um, so yeah, that was delicious. And then I got a beer because it's 9 p.m., but I haven't drank it yet. <laughs> yeah, you guys have uh, great responses to this. I don't think mine's going to be that exciting, but for me, it's just vital to have like here i'll show you thermos of coffee instead of chugging it you know in the morning or whatever i'm just like sipping it you know like every 30 minutes to make sure my brain is you know not like haywiring out of control but then also not going to sleep and so i'm just like always thinking about my that sweet spot caffeine level um and then trail mix it's got to be my my food option Ooh, trail mix. I'm going to have to get that recipe from you. I love it. Um, well, we are sadly out of time. If folks wanted to learn more about this project or contact you, what would be the best way for them to do that? I So I check my professional email address pretty religiously, and that's about it. Um, but yes, if you reach out to me about the project, I'll be happy to respond. Uh, Paul can speak the best for the methods of the project. Mary can speak the best about the data collection aspect of the project. Um, and I can speak for the whole project. Also, just a reminder, Cobap has an amazing website with graphical tools and a Twitter handle and all that sort of stuff. So Ah, 
Yeah, that's a good idea. So our, our Twitter handle is COBAP team. Very easy. Um, and the website is covidborderaccountability.org. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. This has been eye-opening. I feel like I have 100 letters to write to my own uh, you know, policymakers to suggest that they take a look at these data and, and learn more about, um, about the actual information behind this. Um, it's utterly incredible what you've been able to pull together, and it has been a total treat getting to know you. Thank you so much for joining us at Data Brunch. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Wow, they are doing such incredible work. It is a total honor to get to meet people who are making a difference in the world like this. So that's the end of our episode and the end of our season. Thank you so much for being with us. Yes, thank you so much. If you aren't already, subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Tell us what you'd like to hear by filling out the feedback form on our website. And don't forget to share your thoughts on social media using hashtag DataBrunch. Thank you, as always, to the over 700 members of ICPSR. This podcast would not be possible without our ICPSR members. And a special thank you to our producer, Scott Campbell. Thank you, Scott. Scott's waving back at us. <laughs> you can get in touch with us by visiting our website, icpsr.umich.edu or emailing us at icpsr-podcast at umich.edu. So for those of you listening at home or in your car or however you podcast, just wanted to remind you that we do have some pretty cool swag here at ICPSR and it is going to a new home out there uh, to get it, take a picture and tag us on social media using hashtag data brunch or send us an email at icpsr-podcast at umich.edu. We can't wait to see it. We love to see that stuff, especially during the summer while we'll be gone. But again, we will be back in your podcast inboxes in fall 2022. I'm Anna. And I'm Dory. And thanks for joining us at ICPSR's Data Brunch. <laughs>